a metaphor. A metaphor is a figure of speech whereby you take something familiar and you bring it alongside of something else. A metaphor brings color. It brings interest. It, means, it brings depth of meaning to that something else. If I say, he's an early bird, I'm not saying that he has wings or that he has hollow bones. I'm simply saying in a, in a picturesque way that he rises early and begins his day at dawn. If I say, she has eyes of diamonds, I'm not saying that she has rocks in her head. I, I'm, I'm, I'm saying that, that her, her eyes are beautiful, they're bright, they're engaging. If I say, he has a spine of cooked spaghetti, I'm not saying that he, he had surgery recently and had his vertebrae removed and, and, and had cooked pasta uh, replacing. No, I'm, I'm saying that, that he, he, he's a man without courage, a man without conviction. Metaphors are, are, are common there's a, and there are many different kinds of figures of speech, but we, we use these kinds of figures with regularity. I pulled from my, 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 my bookshelf this, this volume by Bollinger entitled Figures of Speech Used in the Bible. There are 1,100 pages of documented figures of speech that this man identified from the pages of Scripture alone. Figures of speech are so common. Sometimes we use them without even understanding that we're using them or, or, or consciously aware that we are using them. The passage of Scripture that we have been looking at and will continue to look at this morning and even into next week has a, a couple of very rich pictures of speech. A metaphor that is is commonly known, ref, used, and uh, with a reference to Christ is is one that we find in John chapter six, where Jesus identifies himself as the bread of life. It, it's a metaphor. When Jesus said, I am the bread of life, he didn't mean that he was an animated, walking, talking loaf of wonder bread. Jesus was communicating something of depth to us. That, that metaphor brings color. It mean, brings interest. It, means, it, it brings a depth of meaning. And when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, he is saying to us that he is the one who is the source of all life. He is the one who alone brings spiritual life to us. Jesus used metaphors um, very frequently. He used uh, uh, the figure of speech called a parable to give us instruction. A parable comes, the, the word parable comes from the, the, uh, the Greek word 
parabole, meaning to throw alongside of. So what Jesus does in this particular figure of speech is to, to throw along something familiar, something else to bring color and interest and depth of meaning, usually in the form of a story. Mark chapter 4, verse 33 reads, With many such parables, Jesus was speaking the word to them so that so far as they were able to hear it. And he did not speak to them without a parable, but he was explaining everything privately to his disciples. In John chapter 16, we read this. Jesus, Jesus is speaking. These things I have spoken to you in figurative language. An hour is coming when, you will no, when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but will tell you plainly of the Father. Jesus uses a variety of different figures of speech. Sometimes we would, we would kind of expect that he would back off on the figures in order to explain their meaning to the gathering crowd. Not the case, because when Jesus used a figure of speech, he left it there, sometimes hanging that the Holy Spirit might use that figure in the lives of the believer to bring color and interest and depth of meaning to what Jesus is communicating. We're in John chapter 6. In verse 35, we read, I am the bread of life. Seven times, seven times in this chapter does Jesus say, I am the bread of life, or I am the living bread that comes down out of heaven. And, and twice in this chapter, the crowd repeats that phrase. So they, they, they know the words. They didn't always understand the meaning behind those words. Verse 41, the Jews were grumbling about him. Because he said, I am the bread that comes out of heaven. They were saying, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? They were in this mental loop that they couldn't escape from. They, they couldn't understand. How is it that Jesus says, he's coming down out of heaven, and yet we know his father and mother? They knew when Jesus said, I am the bread, that he was talking to them in a figure. But what of this, 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 this added statement? I am the living bread that comes out of heaven. Is that another figure? Or is Jesus speaking literally at that point? They were confused. And that confusion led to a great deal of misunderstanding. Jesus doesn't clarify, but he continues to push the figure. Verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. 
This is the bread which comes down out of heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven. Not as the fathers ate and died, he who eats this bread will live forever. I divided our text this morning that begins in verse 52 into three main points. The necessity, the meaning, and the benefits of eating, in quotation marks, eating Christ's flesh. Now, one might think, well, Jesus, if, if the people are struggling to understand um, what it means when you say, I'm the living bread, why do you continue to push it by saying, I am the living bread that came out of heaven? Jesus, you, you, you're using a figure which is obviously a, a, a figurative expression. You don't mean that you are true bread. And yet you say that you came down out of heaven, which is a statement that you meant literally. Why did you not explain that? Why did you in, instead continue to push the, uh, the, the metaphor? To, to go beyond just bread to the fact that they need to eat you. And then you add that they have to drink your blood. The necessity, the meaning, the benefit of eating Christ's flesh, drinking his blood. If the crowd took Jesus literally. That they had to eat his flesh and drink his blood. They would conclude, this is cannibalism. Is this really what you mean, Jesus? They struggled desperately to understand, verse 52, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus' response. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. Notice the word unless in verse 53. It's the same word that we found in verse 44 that we looked at last week. It's what they call in Latin a sine qua non, um, without which not. That is, there, there is something that is an absolute necessity in order to get a particular result. This necessity is we must eat the, the, the flesh of Christ and drink his blood. Without that, Jesus says, you have no life. There's no other way around it. You must eat his flesh, drink his blood in order that you might live. Wait a minute, how, how does this work? How could this be? With that question still lingering, let me move to point number two. We know that it's a necessity, but what does it mean? We've got to know what does it mean when Jesus says, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Through the years, um, Christians have argued with great intensity over what does it mean? What did Jesus mean when he said, eat my flesh, drink my blood? A little church history is in order. Ignatius of Antioch was martyred in 108, AD 108. That is, he was a younger contemporary of the Apostle John. He was very close to Jesus in terms of of time frame. He, no doubt, did not know, had not met Jesus. But uh, the Roman Catholic Church looks to him, and particularly to a statement that I'm going to read to you, as the beginning point, a beginning point, to explain what Jesus meant when he says, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. This is what Ignatius said. The Eucharist is the medicine of immortality. Now, scholars are are divided over what exactly Ignatius meant. There are some that say, well, he's using this as 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 a figure of speech, and there are others who say, no, he's speaking quite literally. Let me say his, his, his statement again and then break it down. The Eucharist is the medicine of immortality. The word Eucharist is not one that we use frequently um, as Protestants. The Roman Catholic Church uses it with great regularity. It comes from the Greek word eucharisteo, meaning um, to give thanks. And it's built off of two main Greek words, eu, Prefix you, meaning good, like a eulogy is a good word that you hear at a, at a, a funeral. 
Uh, the other word, charis, meaning grace, is, uh, is, is the other part, the, the root of that particular Greek word, eucharisteo. Um, so, so good grace is, is, is what we find in the cross of Christ. God's good grace poured out for our benefit that we might have eternal life, that we might receive forgiveness of sin. This is God's good grace. Um, and and, and the, uh, the, the celebration of communion uh, or the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist, all of those are synonymous terms, is, is, that, um, uh, is that act whereby we, we, we capture what took place on the cross of Calvary. Now, going back to Ignatius' statement, he said the, the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, uh, communion, is the medicine of immortality. Now, did he mean by that, literally, that we have to participate in communion, the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, in order that we might have immortality? As if a doctor was to say, if you do not take this medicine, you will die. Your body needs this medicine. Is that what he is saying? Or is he simply saying that the Eucharist, communion, good, uh, the, the, the Lord's Supper, it is, is something helpful to us in view of our immortality? Now, Rome would say, Roman Catholic Church will say, that the Eucharist is an essential. It is a non-negotiable. It is a must. It is a have-to because it is the fulfillment of what Jesus said, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they took Ignatius's words... 1,100 years later, and codified it at the Fourth Lateran Council. 1215, uh, 1215 A.D. was when Pope Innocent III called for and presided over the Fourth Lateran Council. Um, the uh, uh, Pope, pope Innocent was, was arguably the most powerful, influential pope that Rome has ever seen. And it was at that council that uh, the sacramental system of the Roman Catholic Church was codified and, and put on paper and uh, blessed and said, Thus saith the Lord. The fourth of the seven sacraments by which Rome guaranteed um, entrance to heaven uh, from womb to tomb. As long as you were in good keeping with the Roman Catholic Church, um, this would be your destiny. Uh, the, the fourth uh, of the seven sacraments is the Lord's Supper. And it works like this. Um, the priests within the Roman Catholic Church were the only ones that could oversee the Mass, the, the main worship of, uh, of the Roman Catholic Church. And, uh, and the, 
the integral central focal point of the Mass is the Eucharist, whereby the priest consecrates the bread and the wine, and in their understanding, uh, put on paper uh, as transubstantiation in 1215, at that consecration, the bread and the wine become the body and the blood of Christ. So that in the participation of the Eucharist, Lord's Supper, communion, you are eating the flesh of Christ and drinking the blood of Christ. The Council of Trent, 16th century, 350 years later after, after the Fourth Lateran Council. The Council of Trent was Rome's response to the Protestant Reformation. And in Trent, the, the Catholics said this, and I quote, Because Christ our Redeemer declared that which he offered under the species of bread to be truly his own body, therefore, has it ever been a firm belief in the Church of God, meaning the Roman Catholic Church, and this Holy Synod doth now declare it anew, that is, they're rehearsing again what they have said historically, that by the consecration of the bread and the wine, a conversion is made of the whole substance of the bread into the substance of the body of Christ our Lord, and of the whole substance of the wine into the substance of his blood, which conversion is, by the Holy Catholic Church, suitably and properly called transubstantiation. Now, in the Roman doctrine of transubstantiation, the, the elements of bread and wine, the substance of those elements, is transformed into the body and the blood of Christ. Mysteriously, um, miraculously, is this transformation taking place. If you were to look at the elements, they would still be looking like bread, smelling like bread, tasting like bread. You would swear they're bread. But in a spiritual, mystical, miraculous kind of way, they are actually the body and the blood of Christ. So that when you participate, you are actually, literally, eating the flesh of Christ and drinking the blood of Christ. Um, Now, 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 Protestants will, will, will protest at this point. And, and they say, while Rome reenacts the crucifixion of Christ every time they celebrate the Mass, when Protestants celebrate the Lord's Supper, Communion, Eucharist, we are remembering what Christ has done. According to uh, Ludwig Ott, who is a Roman Catholic theologian, uh, the, the Eucharist 
in the Mass is actually a propitiatory sacrifice. Listen. It affects, that is the Eucharist, affects the remission of sins and the punishment for sins. So that when I, as a communicant, uh, participate in the Eucharist, my sins are forgiven. My sins are atoned for. I now possess forgiveness because I have participated and ingested the flesh of Christ and the blood of Christ. Further, this is what the Catechism of the Roman Catholic Church says um, of, of the Eucharist. It is the source, I'm quoting here, the source and the summit of the Christian life, unquote. In other words, if there is no Roman Catholic Church, there is no Roman Catholic priesthood. If there is no Roman Catholic priesthood, there is no Mass. If there is no Mass, there is no Eucharist. If there is no Eucharist, there is not any transubstantiation. If there is no transubstantiation... There is no forgiveness of sin. Now, Rome is very clear and very bold to say, outside of Rome, there is no forgiveness. There is no eternal life. It can only be found in, um, in the sacramental system. It will be found in the celebration of the Mass, in the Eucharist, and nowhere else other than in the other sacraments. So this is, this is what one group has said. This is, this is what Jesus means when he says, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they don't see this as a figure of speech. Oh, no, they see this as a literal statement that must take place. Else, unless this takes place, you have no life. There's verse 53. Verse 54. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. What is stated negatively in verse 53 is stated positively in verse 54. If you literally eat my flesh, literally drink my blood, you will literally have eternal life. Is that what Jesus means? Second page of your notes. Now there are many who uh, will balk at the Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation um, because the the outward form of this um, uh, of these elements remains bread and wine. 
but um, um, of course, Roma come come back and say, "Well, no, you're, you're, you must understand because this is something that is mystically happening, spiritually happening. Uh, it 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 the it's it still yes, it does look like bread, taste like bread, smell like bread, but but in a uh, in a, in a spiritual sense, it's not bread at all. Well." Going beyond simply the, the, the physical mechanics of it, I, w- I want you to listen to a couple of, of um, texts of Scripture regarding um, how the Scripture itself analyzes this doctrine of transubstantiation. And we're, and we're still looking to answer the question, what does Jesus mean when he says, eat my flesh and drink my blood? Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because he died once for all, when he offered up himself. Jesus offered himself once for all. Chapter 9, verse 24. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. One time, the just for the unjust. And he put away sin. It's done with. Chapter 10. Verse 11. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time and after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, speaking of Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. Romans chapter 6. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. It's very, very clear. Jesus uh, died once, and that was sufficient. In the Roman Catholic Church, included in their doctrine of transubstantiation, Christ dies every time they celebrate the Mass. Is that what the Scriptures teach? Is that what the Scriptures encourage us? No, not at all. It is a mark of idolatry to do such and to behave in, in, uh, in, in such a matter, to, to think of Christ and His work. So let me ask uh, the, the next question. When Jesus says, eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. Is he thereby encouraging us to participate in communion? 
Answer, no. No, the figure that Jesus uses of, of, of um, uh, eating his flesh and drinking his blood speaks not of communion, but of faith. Let me show you from the text why I know that to be true. Look again at verse 54. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Okay, now now let your eyes go up a few verses to verse 40. Look at what it says. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. Here, in verse 40, Jesus doesn't use a figure. He uses a figure in verse 54. Eating his flesh, drinking his blood. Those who do so, he says, have eternal life. He doesn't use the figure in verse 40. He speaks in plain language. When we behold the Son, when we believe the Son, we have eternal life. He simply adds the figure which brings fullness, richness, completeness, a depth of understanding to under, to, 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 for, for us to, to grasp what, what does it mean to believe Christ. More at that when we get to the end of our, our um, uh, time together this morning. I, I want you to listen to what one scholar says. Uh, and and he's, he's careful and articulate in, 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 in what he writes. He says, The primary reference of flesh and blood is not to the sacrament, but to the demand for faith in a Christ who became flesh and blood. That is, truly man. Verse 55. My flesh, Jesus says, is true food, and my blood is true drink. What does he mean by that? Well, earthly food perishes. I'm so grateful that we have refrigerators and freezers in our day. It has not always been that way for humanity. And they even, more poignantly, are, are aware that, that, we're aware that uh, food perishes quickly. But Jesus and our faith in Jesus doesn't perish us. As the living bread, he is the one who will continue to give, nourish, and sustain spiritual life. He doesn't perish. He will not fade away. He, no, he, he is true food and true drink. He's continuing to use this figure. Point number three, the benefits of eating Christ's flesh. We've already looked at the, uh, the first one in verse 54. I put notes or uh, blanks in your notes for you to fill in. Our faith in Christ first brings everlasting life. It is um, 
it, it, is, it, it is by faith that we are saved. Uh, it is by faith that we are preserved unto our glorification. It is by faith that we are no longer spiritually dead. By faith, we are no longer slaves of sin. John MacArthur wrote, Eternal life is, first of all, a quality of existence. The divinely endowed ability to be alive to God and the things of God. Second, our faith in Christ brings abiding life. Look at verse 56 in our text. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. And this idea of abiding speaks of a a relationship, a a fellowship with Christ. When we are uh, participating in life with Christ, it is represented in the Lord's table, but that is not the means of grace. It is a reminder of God's grace to us. It is by faith, it is by our belief that we have a relationship with Christ and that that relationship continues from now through eternity. Third, third benefit, our faith in Christ brings spiritual life. Look at verse 57. As the living Father sent me, And I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he will live because of me. Okay, so so follow what Jesus says. God the Father and God God the Son share the same essence. They have the same life, the same spiritual life. They are spirit beings. It's the first part of verse 57. The living Father and the living Son share this. Well, in addition to that, the Father sent the Son and gave the Son human life. So that Jesus was not only a divine living being, he was now also a human living being. And the Father did that for the Son in order that the Son might give his physical life as an offering to the Father for the propitiation of sinful man's rebellion, iniquity, transgression, in order to secure their forgiveness. Living Father, living Son, Father sends the Son and gives him a living life. His life given as a sacrifice enables those who believe to have life, spiritual life, such that they share now the same life with the living Father and the living Son. This is the benefit of eating the flesh of Christ and drinking the blood of Christ. 
we have everlasting life. We have abiding life. We have spiritual life that will never end. Amen and amen. Verse 57, or I'm sorry, verse 58 is, is, a, is a recap. It's a summary statement of what, you, of what Jesus has said. This is the bread which came... This is the bread which came down out of heaven. Not as the fathers ate and died, he who eats this bread will live forever. He stays with this figure. And for those who don't believe, he allows them to kind of wallow in their confusion and their misunderstanding. But for his disciples, this is rich. By way of, of, of application, let me, let me uh, highlight uh, four, four things. Uh, this, this concludes the bulk of what Jesus says regarding himself being the bread of life. And so this, is, this application is, is a little bit more broad than just the text we've considered this morning. Um, number, number one of, of four. Like bread, Christ is real. He's real. It's it's not uh, it's not it's not play. It's not pretend. It's not just some spiritual exercise. Christ, as the living bread, is real. To explain that a little further, I I turn to um, James Montgomery Boyce, in his commentary on John, he, he writes this. Listen. Is he is Christ? Is he as real to you as something you can taste or handle? Is he as much a part of you as that which you eat? Do not think me blasphemous when I say that he must be as real and as useful to you as a hamburger and fries. I say this because... Although he is obviously far more real and useful than these, the unfortunate thing is that for many people, he is much less. He's something that you just put on a shelf. Or he's um, an image. He is an ideal. Oh, no. Far more than that, Christ is real just like bread is real. Secondly, like bread, Christ is indispensable. In the history of mankind, bread is the staple of life. And sometimes it's called that. And depending on where you are in the world, all kinds of of um, uh, 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 grains in particular are, are ground into flour, mixed with water and a little salt, baked, and that becomes the food that sustains. Wheat, corn, rye, barley, sometimes potatoes, sometimes nuts are used to create bread. And, and we find bread in various forms in every culture. You get two pounds, three pound loaves of bread where we live. You find plump bagels in New York City. 
You find bread that is paper thin called naan that the Kurds eat. Different kinds of bread. But it accomplishes the same thing. It, It sustains life. In the same way, Jesus sustains our life. He is indispensable. We find it in um, the Lord's Prayer. Uh, Jesus urges us to pray. Give us this day our daily bread. Give us what we need to sustain life. What are those, those essentials that we must have? Air, water, Well, here the figure of speech is bread. It stands in place of all of these other things that we need in order to sustain life. In the same way, just like bread, Christ is indispensable. He is the staple of life. Third, like bread, Christ must be eaten. And you can put that in air quotes in your notes. Like bread, Christ must be eaten. Uh, He has to be part of me. Because if he's not, he is of no value. Bread is of no value. Food, in general, is of no value sitting on your counter or sitting on the table. To to bring benefit to you, you have to eat it. And in keeping with the figure that Jesus uses and reveals in John chapter 6, he says that we have to believe in him. We have to trust him. To, To eat Christ, if you will, is to trust him, to believe in him. Hmm. Hebrews chapter 4. Indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. If we don't act on the truth that we hear, it is of no value to us. If we don't act toward Christ in faith, knowledge about Christ is of no value to us. Listen to Hebrews chapter 10. If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled under the foot of the Son of God? and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has insulted the spirit of grace. To know about Christ, and to know nothing about it, is of no value to us. 
to know about his mercy, to know about his kindness, to know about his, his care and his provision for us, and yet to not act out on faith. It is of no use to us. There's no benefit in knowing about Jesus or knowing about the Bible. We must eat it. That is, ingest it, digest it, let it become a part of us. Fourth, like bread, Christ must be ingested personally. Now, you might casually, with a twinkle in your eye, say, would you eat one of those sweet, luscious desserts for me? Nobody can eat your food. You have to eat your food. It doesn't matter what other people eat or how much other people eat. What they gain from their food is not going to benefit you in the least. You have to eat your food personally. The psalmist said, chapter 34, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see. Savor and swallow devour and digest metaphor 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 how blessed is the man who takes refuge in him let's pray dear father how we thank you that the living bread of heaven came down taking on the life of a man that we might have life. I pray that the Holy Spirit would move in such a way that we would initially trust you as the living bread. Find in you spiritual life. Find in you only that which is going to bring us eternal life, forgiveness of sins, escape from your coming wrath. And Father, as Jesus pushed that figure and talked about eating his flesh, drinking his blood, as difficult as that language might be, you, you, you are simply urging us with color and interest and depth to believe and to trust the living Christ as our only source of spiritual nourishment. Father, find us faithful, trusting you, looking to you alone for life. In his blessed name do we pray.